0: Please take your Bibles and we'll turn to Genesis chapter 30. This evening we'll be reading from verse 25 through to 43. This is the reading of God's word. Now it came about when Rachel had borne Joseph that Jacob said to Laban Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered to you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name me your wages, and I will give it to you. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you, wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flocks. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black one among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you will come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats, and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar, and almond and plain trees and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart. It did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters, So that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is the reading of God's word. I now call upon the pastor to come and bring the sermon.
1: Well, let's come before our Lord in prayer. It's been a good day and a nice time at lunch today, and that was good. Thank you for all those that uh, helped out in that. Um, My part of helping out was uh, eating, but uh, it is a good day. We're thankful for this evening hour. Lord, we bow before you. We are thankful, Father, for your word. And we pray, Lord, as we see this man, this imperfect man, Jacob, and coming to terms with the passage of time, coming to terms with living in a pagan culture and having a longing to go home. And Father, we too live in a pagan culture, and there is in our heart a desire to be with you and closer to you. We do not know when that day will come, But we know, Lord God, that we are in this world, in this time, in this place to live close to you and help us to do that and help us, our Father, as we look at this passage tonight, to do so attentively to think through what's going on here. What was this place where this man lived? Who was this man Laban? Was he friend? Was he foe? Is Jacob to be regarded as a holy man? We look at all the um, shenanigans, uh, Lord, that took place in his life, all that he did. When it comes to the end of the day, we're reminded we're sinners. Help us, Lord, to learn. Help us to live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I was thinking halfway through the week, when, and I always start the morning sermon first. I, I do a little bit on, on Monday in the evening one. But I always start the morning one uh, first. And uh, I, I guess that sort of works out that uh, if something should take place uh, during the week that becomes particularly stressful, at least I know I'm ready for the morning and we'll, we'll let the rest take care of itself. But I was reading the passage and I said to myself, after so much happening in, in this family, Jacob and his his, his relatives, uh, his wives, and and all of that sort of stuff. Tonight, I I sort of thought, this is a bit of a breather, in a sense. Uh, Those were, and and some of you said, those were hard messages. And yeah, they were hard messages, but they were messages that have to be looked upon because they so typify our culture. But this typifies our Christian culture. Now, we don't think much in our, our day and age about a Christian culture. But we are believers in Christ and we're to live a certain way and we're to be comfortable with certain things and we're to be uncomfortable with certain things. And in the passage of time, we read that Jacob has reached a point where he says it's time to go home. Now, we need to remember something that when Jacob was dispatched to depart uh, from his home and go to the home of his mother, uh, it was not because of particularly sterling situations that had taken place. There was tremendous hostility. Esau hated him. Esau was out to get him. And, and Jacob knew that. And it was very uncomfortable. And, of course, we know that there was discomfort even between Isaac and Rebekah. And all of that turmoil was going on. And, and Rebekah really was the one that spearheaded him getting out of town. And away he went. He didn't go to Laban because it was a trip to a holy place to live in the household of a holy man. Laban is not a holy man. Now, if we were to look at the, 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 the tribes that surrounded uh, where Jacob and, and where Isaac, his father, lived, and, and you start to look, you could see with each, each circle of the tribe and the territory of the tribe, You could see them being worse and worse and worse and worse. There is a sense in which Laban is the lesser of a whole bunch of evils out there. But here Jacob has been. He's worked long and hard. He worked seven years for the surprise of his life. And, of course, the surprise of his life was Leah when he had full intention of working for Rachel. And then he worked seven more years for Rachel In doing that, it introduces all sorts of problems because now he's become a polygamist. And in addition to Leah, he received the handmaiden. Now, the design of that, you recall, was that this was Leah's maiden. Rachel came equipped with a maiden as well, didn't she? But now all of a sudden, those two later on become concubines. And now it becomes a real mess. And here we have tonight... Jacob reaching that point where he knows that it's time to go. And in actuality, it was probably past time to go. And so he comes to his father-in-law. And, and these are a couple of characters, aren't they, when you stop and think about it. Jacob the cheater and uh, Laban the con artist. And here they are. And, and now Jacob comes and he reaches that point where he goes. And it tells us and gives us this picture of Jacob. And it came about that when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Send me. It's time for me to go. And so we have this wonderful picture. And it's an important picture because, of course, in doing this, we have Jacob making a, uh, what might seem to be a strange request. As he makes a request, here's what he's asking for. He says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service which I have rendered to you. And now there's going to be some tension arise because Laban knows something. He knows and recall this man is a very superstitious man. And, And Jacob, for all intents and purposes, has been his good luck charm. Jacob comes And the the fields flourish. Jacob comes and the the cattle are are healthy. The sheep are healthy. The herds are full. and, and, And everything is productive under Jacob. And Laban knows this. He doesn't acknowledge it. He doesn't honor Jacob for it. But he knows it. He knows that the prosperity that has come to his household is a result of the labors of Jacob. He's not interested in the God of Jacob. He's interested in the productivity of Jacob. And Jacob, in a very humble way, as he's, he's wanting to leave, he's not looking for anything that is not his. He just wants his wives and his children. And he wants to leave. And he wants to go home. And that certainly is the yearning of, of people in the world who find themselves in bondage to want to go to some place away from where they are. Some place where they can be free from the circumstances that they find themselves in. And so he goes to Laban. And Laban shows his superstitious character here when, when Jacob is asking for his wives, his children, and I'm ready to go. And Laban says this in verse 27. If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined. Now here's where we see the confusion in the man. He says, I have divined. And he says that the Lord has blessed me on your account. His perception of Jacob being a blessing to him is a result of his dabbling in the occult. And then he attributes it to the Lord. Notice how that's printed in your Bible. Notice how he says, I have divined. Uh, do you have a call in scripture for the believer to be involved in divination? Don't think so. Not even the message gives it that way. We're not to be involved in the occult. We're warned again and again and again in scripture not to be involved in the occult. We're warned out of the Old Testament. We're warned out in the New Testament. We're warned out all the way through. And so here is this man who is involved in some form of divination. Divination. And he's going to attribute it to the Lord. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, you notice, he says, I have, I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Now, the way, now you notice the word Lord that is used here. It's in uppercase letters. It's the capital letters. It's the capital letters that, in the Hebrew characters, spell out Yahweh, the name of God. So, here's this strange mishmash, if you will, of Laban yanking his, his divination and join, joining it up with the name of Yahweh, of God, and saying, as a result of this. Now, the realization is that Laban didn't need to do any divination. And in actuality, Laban didn't even need to call on the name of Yahweh. All he had to do was look out at the fields. The fields were full and flourishing, and, and, and the cattle and the whole bit. And that's all he had to do. But here he is so married to his occultic practices. And we'll see that uh, later on. And if you want to have a sneaky peek, then I'm going to give it to you. And that is in verse 30 of the next chapter. And if you don't want it, I'm going to give it to you anyhow. So here it is. Now you have indeed gone away. Verse 30, chapter 31. You have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my God's? Plural, little g, O-D-S. He had a whole bunch of gods in the house. And, and, and Rachel stole the gods. She grabbed onto the gods, threw them in a sack, and away she goes. And now Laban is hyperventilating here. He goes to his house and he makes a discovery. I don't have my gods. And he gets on his high horse. He pursues a Jacobin family. And he's looking for his gods. So we have to be very careful. We don't want to assume, well, because Laban is, is th- this family from Rebekah. Rebekah was more or less delivered from that kind of life, that kind of family. When, uh, uh, when Abraham sent his servant and she, he came home with Rebekah. We need to see that was a marvelous deliverance. And so here... Jacob, for all these years, has been living in a pagan environment. It wears on you when you live in a pagan environment. Have you noticed that? It wears on us. And it has a tendency to wear people down. It has a tendency to wear Christians down. And we find ourselves tired of the battle. Tired of of skirmish after skirmish after skirmish. Tired of every temptation that comes to us on every front. And the temptations become more and more and more. Now, we have a wonderful protection uh, in a whole lot of ways. First of all, we're believers in the new covenant, which has better promises. And we're indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. We are blessed by being a part of a church. A church family is a wonderful, wonderful gathering of people, isn't it? And we're to rejoice in that. And people that thumb their nose at the church and say, I really don't need that. And they're just a bunch of fuddy duds. Don't know what they're talking about. Christ died for the church. He gave himself for the church. The church is purchased with the blood of Christ. And we're to see the tremendous blessings that we have. But that notwithstanding, we get worn down, don't we? But think of it in the old covenant terms. And here is Jacob surrounded by this paganism. He knew better. He had come from the household of Abraham, Isaac, and here he is, Jacob. And he was not to be surrounded and influenced by paganism, and he wants out. And Laban is the uh, Monty Hall of the Old Testament age, and he wants to play Let's Make a Deal with, with Jacob here. And you notice what he does, and it's fascinating. Uh, as we look at verse 27, we have Laban uh, reminding us, <coughs> pardon me, in verse 27. If it now pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued and said this, name me your wages and I will give it. Uh, those of you that are uh, employed uh, under somebody and uh How would you feel tomorrow if you you get in your jalopy and you drive off to work and you walk into work and you've got your your, your agenda of the day and all of a sudden the boss wants to see you? Now that can mean a whole lot of things for a whole lot of people. Uh, This could mean something good. It could mean something very bad. And the boss calls you in and he says, uh, you know, I really value your work here. You're a great employee, and I don't want to lose you. How much money would it take to keep you in my employ? And then he says, You name the price. Would you do it? Would you say, I'm happy with what I have? I love living in poverty. Or would you go for the gusto? I've got this man. Right, exactly. I've been waiting for three years for this man to come across with some green, right? And here Laban is, and he's saying, here, name the price. Let's, let's do this. Don't go. Stay here. You go, and my business goes down the tubes. And the fact that you're here, and you're lucky, Jacob, then let, let, let's do this. What an offer. And the, the temptation would be there. But the reality is this, Jacob has to get out of the world. He's been immersed in this pagan culture. When we were students at Toronto Baptist Seminary, and I don't know whether when when Caleb was there, they had had all the list of rules and regulations, uh, but there there was a list uh, when I was at Toronto Baptist Seminary, and We didn't have such a list at Atlantic Baptist College. Now, this is not because Atlantic Baptist College was holy and the promised land. It was because Atlantic Baptist College was 15 minutes away from Moncton. And there's a little bit of a difference between the 95,000 in Moncton versus the 3 million at that time uh, that inhabited Toronto. And there's a little less in your face in the sins of Moncton. It's not a holy place than the in-your-face sins of Toronto. And we were actually told, these are places where you do not go, and you're not to go to a movie theater, and, and, and so forth, and so on. And all this was laid out for us. You're not to do this, you're not to do that, and on, and on, and on. And you might have thought, what a bunch of legalists. And they weren't. They weren't at all. They knew... That as you were walking off the Bloor subway and you were walking down uh, the Bloor subway and then you're going down to Yonge Street and across on church or you're going down across on Gerard, whatever way you choose to go to the seminary, you're going to be confronted by every temptation in the book in that quarter mile walk from Bloor all the way down to Gerard and Jarvis. They knew that and they knew how vulnerable Christians are to sin. And one of the key ways of avoiding sin is to run. Isn't that right? Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful temptations. Flee sin like the plague. We're not to walk as close to the borderline. How would you like it? What would you think if I stood and I started preaching from here? And some of you would be saying, oh, a little more movement, pastor. A little more hand motions. a A little forward. Come closer. And all of a sudden, you land in the front pew. You say, what a jerk. Get behind the pulpit where you belong and preach there. Stop this tightrope thing. Why walk so close to the edge that you're going to fall down and clobber somebody? This is why nobody sits here. These are the bravest men in the congregation there. That's it. We're not to walk as close to sin as we possibly can to say, wow, boy, I can withstand any temptation and come away clean. You can't. And sometimes, and I've heard people confess, you know, in my my 20s, I I had really had no difficulties. All of a sudden, I hit my 30s. And all of a sudden, I hit my 40s. And I discovered I'm old. And I discovered I kind of missed out on things. And you have all these men that are going through their second childhood or whatever it was, late in life. And they go to what? They go to the temptations that they were confronted with in their young years. And if you haven't heard that happen before, then you'll hear it happen sometime down the line, because I sure have heard it. We've heard it in our house again and again and again, repeatedly. We're not to immerse ourselves in the world and become embraced, enthralled with the world So that all of a sudden, we have a death grip on the world, and it has a death grip on us. And Jacob needs out. And so this becomes an issue, and here comes the temptation. When you make a serious commitment, whether it's a commitment as a believer, where you say, I am going to get rid of all the idols, all the stuff, the junk, that keeps me from prayer, that keeps me from study, that keeps me from service, that keeps me from attending worship, that keeps me from growing in Christ, I'm gonna get rid of all of that stuff. When you say that, war has just begun. Because you'll be confronted with temptation, enticement at every corner. And here's the temptation I, I, I wanna go with my family, I just want my, my wives, I want my kids. And I want to go, wait a minute, Jacob. Stay here. Whatever it is you want, I'll give you. Whatever price you want, I'll give you. And that's the temptation. And Jacob is reasoning. And it begs the question, can Laban be trusted? There was a preacher, I've never heard him preach on tape. He's long with the Lord, and he wrote a sermon. His last name was Pyle. Please don't think Gomer. His, his, his name was Joseph, and I don't even know exactly. I know he was a, a Baptist, and I know he was an independent Baptist, although there's no such thing if we have a healthy church view. We're dependent on one another to pray for one another and encourage one another, but he was an independent Baptist, and there's no such thing because I've gone to conferences where all the churches there were independent Baptists, Go figure. But he had a sermon. It had a powerful title All Satan's Apples Have Worms. Now, I know it wasn't an apple, but you get the picture. It looks good. And the tragedy is this you take a bite of it and you see in the apple, and you look in the apple, and there's half a worm. That's it. And here is Jacob, and he needs to get out. And Laban's making him the offer that he can't refuse. And now Jacob counters, and it's kind of bizarre and difficult reading and thinking it all through as to exactly what's happening here. But Jacob is going to make a counter offer here. And we see it once Laban says, Name your wages, and I will give it. He said to him, You know yourself how I have served, and how your cattle have fared with me. He just admitted it. He goes on and he says, for you had little before I came. This man was living in poverty. And Jacob came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you. And Jacob is describing this without divination, you see. There's a difference, isn't there? Laban was involved in divination to ascertain that he had been blessed because of Jacob. Jacob just forthrightly says, you have been blessed. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned, whatever I did, whatever I put my hand to, the Lord has blessed you. What you have received, Mr. Laban, has come to you from God. He has blessed you not because of you. He has blessed you in spite of you. And so notice something. Laban will not take no for an answer. Follow the flow of of the conversation. Think it back to verse 27. And now the statement that Jacob has made. And so he says, but now shall I provide for my own household also? Because this is what Jacob wants to do. So he said, what shall I give you? Another offer from Laban. And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today. And he's going to remove every speckled, uh, spotted sheep, every black one and so forth. So he asked for that. There's still not this leaving. There's still not this departing. And then he goes on and he says, such shall be my wages. Now, at that point, you would think, well, this is a wonderful deal, and Laban is excited about it, but you learn something about Laban, and it's this, Laban doesn't trust Jacob. Now, how do we know that? Well, notice what takes place. Jacob makes a pledge of honesty in verse 33, and he says, So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs if found with me, will be considered stolen. And Laban, once he has that deal from Jacob, says, sold. Wonderful. Consider it done. He says, good. Let it be according to your word. So they did the separation on that day. They put distance of three days journey, verse 36, between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them exposing the white which was in the rods. And at that point, you say, I'd never heard of this in my life. What in the world is this? And it has to do, and and the fellow that was most helpful on this is a man by the name of Derek Thomas. Now, I've mentioned Derek Thomas before, and you're saying, I have no recollection of you ever mentioning him in my life. But also, I'll mention him again at no charge. Uh, Derek Thomas is a Welshman, and he was born on a large sheep farm over in the old country in Wales. And because God has this wonderful way of pulling people up where they are, all of a sudden the, the Welshman ends up being a pastor in Jackson, Mississippi. He hasn't got a wonderful sense of humor. And, and Derek Thomas, uh, and my, my daughter remembers Derek Thomas because of the hand lotion story, but uh, you have to ask me that later. Derek Thomas uh, learned an awful lot, of course, as a sheep farmer. Uh, one of the helpful pieces of advice that was given to him was this never name the sheep. Never name that which you potentially are going to have served to you on the table. But then he said in talking about this, he said this is a superstition of the area. Laban, we've already ascertained, is involved in divination. He does everything according to his superstition. And we have Jacob accommodating The superstition of Laban here, doing when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now he's doing in Haran as the Haranites do. And he's going to use Laban's rules to show that God is going to bless. Does Laban trust Jacob? (laughs) Not at all. A couple of things in which we know he doesn't is this. He didn't trust him. He put his son-in-law in charge here. And so we have all of these things taking place But you notice in verse uh, 35, he gave them in the care of his sons. Laban doesn't trust Jacob. And he's going to make sure that there's no uh, manipulating on the part of Jacob. And Jacob follows through. And the flocks are mated by the rods. And the flocks brought forth striped, verse 39, speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the stripe and all the black flocks and so forth. You're saying, well, it must work. And and Derek Thomas has an answer for that. And you probably have already ascertained the answer. And it's this. It's God blesses in spite of, not because of. And this is not about a whole bunch of rods being well peeled and following some folklore that was part of the Haranite culture, this is God blessing Jacob and giving affirmation. This man, Jacob, is to get out. This man, Jacob, is to leave. This man is to separate ties and is to go on. And so we have this picture that the feeble flock were Laban's, verse 42. The stronger were Jacob's. Laban was doing the same hocus-pocus that Jacob was doing, but the results were different. Why are the results different? Did Jacob use better wood? No. Verse 43, the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. He put his hand doing what God had called him to do, with the objective being to move out of where he was and to go home to where he belonged. Now you see, this is important, isn't it? Because Jacob has been living in a pagan, pagan culture. And Jesus tells us over in John chapter 17 what our role is. And the role of of God's people is not to be of the world. Jesus speaks and he speaks. And this is from the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And Jesus speaks and says, I have given them your word. He's speaking to the Father. And he's saying, I've given the world, the disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. There's a tension and if you don't feel that tension as you find yourself out in the world, interacting with the world, if you don't feel attention tension as to what's going on in our world around us, then there's something very, very wrong with the spiritual level of your heart tonight. If you don't find a tension in what is happening in our country, in our province, then you've become lax. And lulled to sleep. There is a tension. And we find ourselves uh, enveloped, if you will, by a rising tide of paganism. And here is Jacob. And he's been living in that environment. And Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And he wants them to know that the world doesn't love the followers of Christ. Charles Spurgeon ran orphanages, set up schools, set up training schools, had a soup kitchen, fed the poor, clothed the poor, and Spurgeon preaching the gospel every Lord's day was lampooned in the newspapers every Monday and ridiculed, they drew caricatures of him and because of the style of dress in those days it was not unusual for men to uh, wear white shirt, whoops, and a black tie and a black jacket and with tails. And they would continuously draw him and caricature him as a penguin in the newspaper. Another reason to stay behind the pulpit. But they would continuously ridicule him. All the good that he did. All the ministry that the church did. They should have been writing him and saying, Thank you, Mr. Spurgeon. Thank you, Metropolitan Tabernacle, for your love of this wicked city. And they despised him. They mocked him. And he died of a broken heart. His last year's were years where he continued in ministry, but they were years of despond, where he would find himself in a very, very dark place for an extended period of time. And he would wonder and muse and say, how am I going to stand before these people and preach again? And every Sunday he stood before the people and preached again. Did the world love it? They despised it. They despise it. You see, you're saying they should love it. But you're saying that because you're a Christian. But they don't have a heart for it. And Jesus says, believe it or not, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, to be kept from the evil influences of the world. Jacob had been under evil influence long enough. And it was time to get out. And we have this picture set forth. It needs to be set forth in our life and in our culture too, doesn't it? We're going to stay in the New Testament. We'll finish shortly. Let's just look. Turn over to Second Corinthians for a second. Second Corinthians chapter 6. See, separation, biblical separation, is not something where we say we're separate and you're not. We're good and you're not. It's not that, that's not the spirit of it. But as Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and if ever there was a church that was in an unhealthy, wicked environment, it was Corinth. You recall that. This international city. It was a sports town. It was a pseudo-intellectual town. It was a seaport. And if you've ever lived in a seaport, and I grew up in a seaport, you'll find yourself seeing the most strangest characters that would wash up on shore, and the strangest characters. And my wife and I would talk about St. John and and the fascinating characters that were a part of the city of St. John and just staggering because they came from all over the place. And that's what Corinth was. And they were surrounded by abject, in your face paganism, these Christians. And Paul is writing them, and he's asking them a pointed question. And he says this in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Now this is a rhetorical question, and the answer to it is implied by the question itself, right? Thank you. One of us got that. Okay. (laughs) Right? It's true. Okay. The rhetorical question is asked, what has a believer in common with a non-believer? And the answer is nothing. We serve the Lord. We belong to him. We love him. We strive after him. We strive to please him. We strive to live for him. We strive to bring honor and glory to him. It's Christ and Christ alone for us. That's the believer's creed. That's his his driving force in his life. So he's asking these questions. What agreement, verse 16, has the temple of God with idols? And the answer is absolutely nothing. What possible commonality would there be between Laban the divination freak, and Jacob, the man who is striving to please the Lord, as imperfect as he was. What do they have in common? Nothing. A little bit of rural life, but in their mindset, in the spirit of the man, they have nothing in common. And Laban will do nothing but drag Jacob down. Just like an unbeliever in an unequal yoke will drag the believer down all the time, again and again and again, that gets. Gets repeated, doesn't it, in in church life, where somebody says he's showing an interest in the church. He's reading his Bible. He took home a daily bread. Yeah? And then what happens? What happens is this he drags down, and I speak in the context because gals are more likely to marry uh, unbelievers. Than, than guys are and and I, why is that I don't know but they are and, and gals are very very vulnerable and guys like Christian gals because they know there's a bit of decency in them and and they like that idea because they've been running around in the world and they've been involved in all sorts of of, of sin and all of a sudden they come across this 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 gal and there's a, a, a moral purity that is very enticing, and they're attracted by that. unsafe guys are, and the gal is attracted by the attention. The guy lands on the doorstep and he's got a handful of posies and he's taking you out to a fancy restaurant at Wendy's and it's it's not and you and you're not going Dutch. Sorry for those of you of Dutch extraction. It fell out. What's he saying? What agreement do these things have? And the reality is, there's no agreement with separate lives. So he says, and God speaks, and he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. For we are the temple of the living God, we're the temple. In the Old Testament, the emphasis was on the temple, temple, temple. Build the temple. In the New Covenant, we're the temple. God indwells a believer by his Holy Spirit. And so we have this picture. I will dwell in them. Notice that in verse 16. I will dwell not with them, but I will dwell in them. And I'll walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's the therefore of that statement? The therefore is found in verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. That's it. That's it. Jacob didn't understand it perfectly. And we may not always understand it completely. But make no shortcuts on this short-circuiting of the truth of this, a blunting of the sword of this. To tamper with what God has decreed of his people is to court disaster. I was reading Leviticus this afternoon and reading it and trying to read it as much as I can to get more and more into it. And I, I come into chapter 19 and, and you read along. And over and over and over again in that chapter is this phrase, I am the Lord Almighty. I am God Almighty. I am the Lord. It's, it's almost like an echo. God says something. It's like a chorus almost. God says something. I am the Lord. God says another statement. I am the Lord. Another statement. I am the Lord. What's he telling us? He's telling us he's the Lord. And we're to live for him. Jacob struggled with it, and so do you, and so do I. But make no mistake, that's who we belong to if you're in Christ tonight, and we're to live for him. And the reality is this, we are not different by accident. We're different by design. For if any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. The new things have come. New life in Christ, a new direction from Christ, a new destination to Christ. And if you don't have that, then you're living wrong and you're going in the wrong direction and you'll end up in the wrong place. Jacob understood it was time to leave. It's time to leave the worldliness the enticements of the world and the trappings of the world that we would lay hold of Christ. Let's bow before him, shall we? Father, we bow before you. We give you thanks, Lord God, for your love and mercy to us. We give you thanks, our Father, that your word makes it clear that there is a large gap between what is right and what is wrong, that there's no mixing and no confusion and no big gray area where everybody can do whatever they want to do with no reference to you. You are either the Lord of all or you're not the Lord at all. And for those who have come to you in faith and repentance, we know that you are the Lord, the Lord of all, the Lord of all things. And you have something to say to us about all things. And we are, as we sang earlier tonight, we are to come to you and to surrender to you. And may we do that and speak to our hearts and enable us to do that and strengthen us to walk in this wild and provocative and wicked world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.